From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. From the start of the COVID pandemic, there were some communities who were considered to be more vulnerable to the virus than others. In Australia, very early on in the pandemic, public health authorities said that Aboriginal people were a clearly defined vulnerable population. But since the arrival of vaccines, and despite Aboriginal Australians being in a priority group for vaccination, the vaccination rates are staggeringly low among individuals. And now, facing the biggest threat from COVID transmission so far in the pandemic, the race is on to encourage Aboriginal communities to get vaccinated. This episode, we're joined by a reporter from the Medical Republic, Holly Payne. Hi, Holly. It's good to be back, Francine. So at the start of the pandemic, there appeared to be extra precautions in place to prevent COVID entering Aboriginal communities. And that seemed to work fairly effectively. I remember, you know, there were signs up. There were, uh, in some places, I believe that there were roadblocks. There were quite clear communications going out from the relevant state and territory governments to stop people entering uh, certain areas to keep individuals safe. But in the current New South Wales outbreak, we've now seen cases appear, particularly in northwest New South Wales so far, which is putting Aboriginal communities at risk. Holly, can you tell us what happened this week and why it's so concerning? Yeah, Francine. So a lot of the, especially the regional Indigenous communities in places like Barorina, have they've remained relatively safe throughout the pandemic, um, given most of the major outbreaks have been confined to the major cities. To date, there have been zero deaths from COVID-19 in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population, which is pretty, pretty fantastic, especially given that there are higher rates of comorbid diseases, which would specifically make Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people more susceptible to COVID-19. That was where a lot of that worry came from in the first place. So yeah, things have been going pretty great. And then now we're seeing COVID kind of starting to escape Sydney um, and into places like Rorona, which I mentioned before, where roughly one quarter of the population are Indigenous people. And there are different living conditions. There are more people living in one house, which as we know from the current outbreak, uh, really I guess, intensifies um, transmission during the Delta strain. And it was all sparked by a man who had tested positive while in custody um, around the Dubbo region, I believe. And his actual test wasn't given priority. So by the time they came back with that positive result, he'd actually made bail and he'd returned home to Walgett. Um, And that is where a lot of the concern, um, especially in that region, is coming from. There are also very real fears that the hospitals and clinics uh, out in the regional areas may not be able to sustain a larger outbreak. And honestly, this is really not the way it was meant to go. Yeah, and it's quite a shame because I recall last year speaking to our COVID blogger, Bianca Nogrady, about how the success of keeping COVID out of Aboriginal communities in Australia was actually quite an international success story and it really showed how uh, you know community leaders and other individuals who were connected with health services in those areas had just done this amazing job between health communication and also education around the virus and transmission. What is happening more recently given that 
you know, there's under-resourced health services and access problems in these areas. Yeah, so kind of backtracking from that, we haven't actually seen the, um, or at least the data showing how many Indigenous people have been vaccinated versus non-Indigenous people um, who have received at least a first dose. That data actually hasn't been available publicly until this week. So it's been a bit hard to tell how that rollout has been going. Vaccine supply has also been constrained to these communities, and this is despite Aboriginal people being a priority population. In fact, all of these individuals in these priority populations really should have already been offered a vaccine by now, but we know that this isn't the case. What's gone so wrong? Absolutely. So from... August the 2nd, um, according to Atagi advice, all Indigenous people aged 12 or over can get a vaccine. Um, They are eligible. And that's because, you know, the higher um, comorbid diseases and everything, and they are this priority population. What I think went wrong uh, from the people I've spoken to and from what I've read is that initially it was all relying on the AstraZeneca vaccine, which I'm sure is something everyone (laughs) wasn't really expecting to happen Um, with obviously the changing Atagi requirements. um, That was really scrapped. Um, I think AstraZeneca was um, going to be easier to transport out into regional areas where there are high populations of Indigenous people. Um, So everything was kind of riding on that. So when that fell through, especially given looking at like the makeup of the Indigenous population, 90% of people are under the age of 60. So that didn't really leave a lot of room um, when those Atagi requirements were first changed for anyone to get a vaccine, really. So we ended up with quite low rates um, of vaccination in the Indigenous population. We're looking at, according to the recent data, about 30% of people have received at least one dose, and that's just in the Indigenous population. But the non-Indigenous population, that number is about 50%. Um, So obviously quite a stark difference, um, especially given Indigenous people were meant to be the priority group. And a lot of this came down, which you've already mentioned, is that there were these really tight cold chain management issues at the start of the rollout, which meant that even though people in phase 1A and 1B were designated by the government to get the Pfizer doses, the more convenient option was AstraZeneca. Yes, absolutely. And that did change um, once... Was it Atagi, I believe, or the TGA decided that the Pfizer vaccines could be stored in lower temperatures for a longer period of time? So I think, but by the time that, I guess, kind of quandary was solved, everything changed and there just wasn't enough Pfizer to go around at all. And that's not to say there isn't, you know, an extreme willingness to be vaccinated in these communities, Um Indigenous Australia's Indigenous population has one of the highest vaccination rates worldwide um, when you're looking at, um, I think, children under five and the flu vaccine especially. So it's not a vax-averse population. I think it's really been this supply issue that's, I guess, 
kind of cut everything off at the knees. And could you tell us a little bit about that issue in light of the fact that I know that there were some vaccination hubs that were planned for certain communities and when people showed up or, you know, just days or hours before they found out that it was all AstraZeneca vaccines on offer and there were no mRNA vaccines to be seen, even though that they might have been expecting to get mRNA vaccines. I mean, anyone would you know, have a bit of a crisis of trust if you thought you were getting one thing and then you were offered another. How does that play out, specifically more the demographics and, and age groups involved? Yeah, absolutely. Given, you know, the younger, the skew towards younger age groups um, or the skew towards, uh, I guess, a younger population in the Indigenous um, community, a lot of people haven't really been willing to get that um, AstraZeneca vaccine I spoke to Dr. Jason Agostino. He's a GP and one of the medical advisors to the National Aboriginal Controlled Community Health Organization, or NACHO. And he was saying that really everyone's just been wanting Pfizer. Um, and in recent weeks, they have seen that change, especially they've had lots more younger people coming through and getting AstraZeneca after seeing everything unfolding in Sydney. Um but I think that, you know, that situation where people turned up expecting Pfizer and got AstraZeneca, you would think that that would, you know, have a negative impact on on trust, yeah. So what do we know so far? I know that the data is limited, as you've already said, but anecdotally, or what have you heard about the current vaccination rates among Aboriginal people? Yeah, so... Weirdly enough, there actually hasn't been any of that data released until earlier this week, which is pretty disappointing given that Department of Health does collect this data but have just chosen not to release it. Um, and, yeah, the latest stats do show that about 30% of First Nations people aged 16 and over have received at least one dose, um, but that non-Indigenous rate is 50%, um, so a pretty stark difference. Um, and... There has been um, a big increase in the last few weeks, uh, especially to do with first doses. Um, Dr. Agostino said that since their services um, came on board with Pfizer, the number of weekly doses going to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people shot up by about 250%. So what they're seeing is that when Pfizer is available, vaccination clinics are filling right up very quickly. So I think that's kind of very much, you know, a beacon of hope. And I guess the other beacon of hope is that stat that there's still been zero deaths at the moment among Aboriginal Australians. There's still some concern, though, that there's spread in communities in Greater Sydney and that some Aboriginal people who are living in metropolitan areas for a variety of reasons may have decided to move back to be closer to family or community in regional and rural areas and that, you know, the virus could have travelled with them. And there's really been a lot of media attention around this issue all week and, frankly, people are quite disgusted in the lack of care and attention that's been afforded to making sure that Aboriginal people are, are given a fair chance to be vaccinated just as others in vulnerable populations have been. What's the solution so far to make sure that there is access 
and in the shortest time possible because we are now facing this virus in real time. Absolutely. So um, just this week as well, there was this letter that came out co-signed by Pat Turner, who's the CEO of Nacho, as well as um, vaccine rollout commander JJ Fruin and uh, Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly. Um, And that was basically encouraging primary care vaccinators to proactively reach out and engage with their Indigenous patients. Um, Anyone in the Indigenous community over the age of 12 is eligible for a Pfizer vaccine, from what I understand, um, or the AstraZeneca vaccine of over 60. Um, And when I spoke to Dr Agostino, he said that they've only got 143 Aboriginal controlled community health organizations or art shows which are vaccinating um, and that they do need, I guess, state health to step in and reach out to Aboriginal populations um, and they do need that primary care angle to come in and just try their best to reach out, I mean, as hard as it is given the current circumstances. In a lot of ways, though, that isn't any small undertaking. It's, you know, all very well and good to tell primary care to do that. But with how under-resourced and sometimes understaffed these health services can be in certain regions, is there any additional support that the government is offering? That's kind of unclear at the moment. Um, As I said, they've been a bit tight-lipped with data and what exactly they're doing. Um, So Dr. Agostino did say that the government had surprisingly been quite helpful thus far, that there have been increasing doses of Pfizer where possible. But he also said that another issue that they're facing is staff shortage, specifically um, a shortage of vaccinators. Um, I think they're looking at needing more nurses and more manpower to get that out. But with the virus creeping closer to especially the rural communities where there's less hospital support, the race is really on to get those jabs and arms and protect the vulnerable communities as the virus creeps out of Greater Sydney and into the regions. Holly, thank you. Thanks, Francine. Before we go, don't forget that you can follow or subscribe to The Tea Room right now by searching for the show on the podcast player of your choice. You'll then be notified when a new episode becomes available. Catch you next time.